At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. Leading a business can't compare to the pressures of an army commander on a battlefield. Some days it just seems that way. But there are key lessons from military leadership that apply to business, especially as leaders cope with the relentless and unpredictable pace of technology change and digital disruption. Colonel Scott Snook is an expert on leadership and organizational dynamics at Harvard Business School. He's led army units in battle, taught at West Point, and is the author of the book Friendly Fire, the accidental shootdown of U.S. Blackhawks over northern Iraq. Hi, I'm Kevin Delaney, executive editor and senior writer for Connected Futures. I asked Colonel Snook about some of the parallels between the military and business disruptions in the digital age. That is, the new world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, or as the Army calls it, VUCA. But beyond creating a snappy acronym, the Army used VUCA as a rallying cry for reimagining some deeply ingrained top-down leadership traditions, something many business leaders have been forced to do as well. Just a little history. We went through a, a similar awakening back after the end of the Cold War. So 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, and um, all of a sudden we're faced with the largest military in the world, and we've got nobody to fight. And uh, at the time, our chief staff, the Army, sort of said, you know, what's the world going to look like 10, 20 years out? And they, a bunch of studies were done, and they came back with this acronym, which I imagine you've seen, called VUCA. Um, there are a couple versions of it, but V-U-C-A, or my version I prefer is V-U-C-C-A. Uh, we don't know what exactly the world's going to look like next week, but we're pretty sure it's going to trend along these dimensions. It's going to be increasingly volatile, increasingly uncertain, increasingly chaotic, complex, and ambiguous. And, you know, little did we know in 1989 how um, incredibly VUCA the world was going to get. Or, as it turned out, how outmoded traditional approaches to leadership would soon become. And so what we had then was, you know, a military built largely on a linear kinetic view of the world, uh, front lines, back lines, enemy, us, and the world just doesn't work that way anymore. So, so then what are the implications for leading? And then we looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, oh my gosh, you know, we really are the stereotypical um, military leadership style, and we develop leaders in that mold, or top-down, very bureaucratic, very slow, very hierarchical chain of command, and that's just not going to work, right? It's just too fast-paced. We need people at the front lines making decisions. Um, we need to think about leadership and leader development in an entirely different way. Part of that involves sharing intelligence much further down the chain of command, empowering junior leaders with decision-making responsibilities that would have been unthinkable in years past all of which demanded fundamental changes to Army culture. Share intelligence, which for us um, was a real cultural shift. Um, push intelligence all the way down because, <laughs> you know, again, we, the, the stereotypes are actually pretty accurate. You know, if you don't have a need to know, you know, we're just not going to 
you know, share it with you. And, you know, and or if I shared it, if I told you something, I'd have to kill you. I mean, all those ridiculous things. So like the business world, it's become less hierarchical and more collaborative. Well, it has to be. And it has to be, and it's driven by uh, more junior leaders having to make decisions on the spot. So once they accept uncertainty, accept the fact that you can't control everything and know everything. And, and this is really the cultural shift, right? Because at the time we believed we had, we're going to digitize the battlefield. We have the best intelligence. We've got satellite imagery. We've got all sorts of ways to figure out where we, you know, we can wire up every soldier, every vehicle. Um, but even, you know, we always say deep in the military culture is the enemy always gets a voice, a vote. Um, so does the weather, right? So, and, and even sayings like once you cross the line of departure, the plan goes out the window. Um, all these are meant to remind us that, um, that no, you, no matter how well, and that doesn't mean you don't plan, but no matter how well you plan, there's going to be uncertainty out there. To trust your junior leaders with big real-time decisions in such an uncertain environment demands a lot of attention to training, as well as creating a culture in which your organization's values are clear. Competency and trust through shared values, this allows you to delegate, right? If, you, if you're people on the front lines, you know, again, the business world, same thing. If, you, if, they don't, if they're not well enough trained to make the calls and they don't share your values, but if you have the two of those together, you know, that then it's much easier for senior leaders to give up, you know, and, and give them the authority and autonomy to make the calls on the spot. If they're really well-trained and they're confident in what they do and they share our values, you know, we're not, we don't have to be there right all the time. Of course, delegating responsibilities doesn't always come easy for type A leaders, whether in the army or in a business. Then the leader then becomes a support role instead of this um, constantly controlling and moving chess pieces around. And then just get out of the way, you know, which is, you know, really hard <laughs> for both yeah. senior leaders. So this flipped every day. And I'll just give you a quick example. We have four children. They all went to West Point. Uh, my one son was a, was a young lieutenant, uh, fresh out of West Point Ranger School, 82nd Airborne Division, goes to Afghanistan. And, I mean, they gave, first of all, they gave my son, who was 24 years old, a province in Afghanistan. I don't even give him the car keys. Right. So, I mean, and, and this is why we moved this way. It wasn't because we're more enlightened and we want to be more progressive and we want to empower our junior leaders. It's because the nature of the battlefield in our case, the nature of our profession changed. We've been for the last 15 years occupying countries and, you know, one, two, sometimes three, depending on how you count them. And so what we did is we have to put junior leaders out there. There's no frontline, backline. There's no linear battlefield. So you put someone like my son out there with his platoon from the 82nd Airborne Division, and um, you know he's responsible for everything that happens in the Zabul province in Afghanistan. So whether 24-year-old Lieutenant Sean Snook is building a girls' school or tracking terrorists, he has all the information he needs. Sean actually, you know, even as a young junior officer. In terms of distributing intelligence, he could query national command authority intelligence, like satellite imagery that's, you know, that normally would have been TS, top secret, SBI, you know, access. He can actually look at any zone, any feeds from um, imagery from any orbiting uh, drones out there, you know, so he knows what he needs to know right now. And he's got really competent people, strong set of values. And you know, and then the leader's going around like a four-star reaches down to a young lieutenant and just checks up on him and says, you know, okay, it sounds like you got the right mission in mind. You got your limits. What can I do for you? You know, and then, you know, and that's what the leader does. And then, then he goes around and 
make sure everybody's clear on that, adjusts and, and then ends up being in a support mode rather than constantly making things happen. So that's, that's kind of a shift uh, for the VUCA world. There's a real parallel with the business world there because there was a time when data insights were really in the province of the C-suite and the data center, the data scientists. And given the nature of digital technologies, mobility, a lot of people at every level of an organization can be empowered with these, these kind of insights. And it impacts decisions on every level. It's not just the senior leaders who are making decisions. People in an organization make decisions at all levels any given day. That can be important, especially when you add them all up. Yeah, and then that's flipping. I mean, flipping the battlefield, like flipping the classroom with, um, with information, uh, with massive online learning. I mean, it basically, you know, not knowledge is fungible. Tan- you can get it to everybody. It's cheap. You can get it out there. Mm-hmm. So why not, right? And then, then that just changes the whole nature. Also, changes the nature of authority, where you'd have to wait for the boss because he knew what was going on. <laughs> well, you know, you actually know what's going on. Uh, you know because you got the information that you needed at the right time. And, and then it just changed the whole nature of the relationships on, on the battlefield. Older companies and older organizations like the military, they're locked into these mindsets that are deeply rooted. And what were some of the um, challenges in making that change? Was there a lot of resistance to it? Yeah. I mean, the good, the good news was for us, I mean, good news, bad news. The good news is we were actually at war. And if we hadn't been at war for the last 15 years, I don't think we could, you know, burning platform. I don't think you make this change because in peacetime we can, and we can still be in garrison. We can be as top down bureaucratic, anal, stupid as anybody in the world. It's not unlike a company that's been disrupted by an agile digitized startup and simply can't afford to do things the same way. Unfortunately, unfortunately, if we had tried to do this in peacetime in our training centers, uh, you know, it would, would have taken a, a generation. But the fact that, you know, that the enemy or the mission, you know, being dispersed across several countries, we couldn't be there to control all of our junior leaders. So we actually had to try this. Uh, we, and, and for me, it's fascinating that, you know, you don't change anything unless you have to, <laughs> you know, if you can continue um, to get away with this sort of hierarchical linear mindset, uh, we would, I think we would have done it a lot longer because we were forced to make this shift. Absolutely well, dramatically forced. Again, it's, it's a really interesting parallel with the business world because there's so many traditional companies, things were working great and they had a certain mindset and certain assumptions that made them successful in the first place. And they would have been happy to just keep it that way for forever. Sure. But digital <laughs> disruption is so dramatic. Startups pop out of seemingly nowhere and challenge your business models. Um, companies that from another industry that you didn't even think were going to challenge you are suddenly in your space. Apple, the computer maker, is suddenly in music and television and phones and everything else. They're Maybe class kids, but there, right. there's so many. So at the end of the Cold War, we're the biggest, baddest guy in the block. There is no one in the world that can challenge us conventionally. And then what happens? September 11th, somebody flies planes into the World Trade Towers, and we actually had to come up with a name for it. It's called asymmetric, asymmetric warfare. And well, that's not fair. You know what? We, we got better tanks than you do. And now you're changed the rules of the game, right? You're flying planes into the world trade towers. And, you know, the threat came from a direction, um, from a different enemy uh, with different rules than, as you just said, you know, than we ever imagined. 
And so it, it re- requires a dramatic shift, and we can see it now in cyber technology. You know, and what is really our center of gravity in this country? It's really our economy. And you think about cyber warfare, you know, and, and they just changed all the rules. Yeah, nobody can beat us on a battlefield. That's, you know, but it's now asymmetric warfare, and you know, the rules are changing all the time. Yeah, Russia disrupts our elections, spending yeah. a fraction of what they ever would have spent on weapons <laughs> on cyber warfare, on, on modernizing, and you know, give up really. I mean, I haven't given up. You know, trying to catch up with our latest bombers and our latest technology in the battlefield. But yeah, it's nothing, right? So you just, you just. Shift the playing fields. <laughs> yeah. yeah, change the rule. So, automation, AI, advanced analytics—they're all changing the nature of work, and they're eliminating some of the rote manual labor that defined many jobs for so many years. That creates a lot of disruption, but it also opens up opportunities for workers to be more creative. So, how does a leader promote that creativity and that kind of innovative thinking on a team? You know, you just don't tell them how to suck the egg, right? So you give them a sandbox, left and right limits. You tell them the end state. Here's what we're all trying to do. And then you give them the resource. You give them the information, the resource, and turn them loose. And, and that's just, it sounds simple, but it's so counterintuitive than telling them how to suck the egg, right? And tell them, here's what I want you to do today, every minute of the day. We used to have, um, you know, big maps on the battlefield and checkpoints. And you've got to, re- you know, your unit has to reach this checkpoint by a certain time. And then this point, you know, and everything was controlled from, some master control board, you know, at high, through up headquarters. And now it's, it's just completely inside out and it allows junior leaders to be creative and figure out how they want to accomplish, you know, whatever we've sort of collectively decided we want to accomplish together within the limits of geographical limits or legal limits. Yeah. I think it was general Patton, not always famous for his emotional intelligence who said, uh, you can tell people where to go, but not how to get there. And they might just astonish you with how they do it. That maybe speaks to some of these leadership changes that we're talking about. You have teams of people and you need to give them the culture and the values and the data and the information along with the right training, and then just let them go. Turn them loose. Yeah. And yet at some high level, you're responsible, you say brand equity, but the military still retains, you know, on most polls, some of the highest level of trust um, of any institution in the country. Mm-hmm. And we make mistakes all the time. Um, and so maintaining that sort of like, you know, and that might be owning up to a, you know, a battlefield air or whatever it is, but maintaining a long-term, long-term perspective about the relationship uh, between the military and, and the citizens, you lose that. And then, and then what happens is, just what happened in banking, right? So any profession, you know, high or low profession, whatever you want to call them, it, it, they, society allows doctors, lawyers, physicians, um, bankers, you know, business people, a lot of autonomy until they prove that they're not making, you know, best decisions in the interest of society. And then when they do, um, disprove that, then we're, then society steps in and regulates, right? Hmm. And so if you want to maintain trust, um, you know, that long-term perspective of maintaining trust with either your, your employees or your clients, or, um, we do it, you know, in the military and how, and that's tough to do when in the short run, you'd like to, you know, do what seems expedient in terms, in the, in terms of the short-term media spin. 
Along those lines, you've written about the 1994 incident where U.S. jets shot down an American helicopter. And I, I believe you've been a victim of friendly fire yourself. And again, I, I don't want to equate the level of those tragedies with the business world, but everybody screws up. Every company screws up, every individual. Yeah. What are some of your lessons that, that you've learned in the military that apply to business leaders when they're managing through a crisis and, and some of the organizational dynamics that come into play? Well, first, yeah, there's some clear lessons and we, you know, we got to relearn them every time, you know, just be humble in the immediate aftermath of one of these crises and until you find out what the facts are, you know, just, and as much as it feels like, you know, there's pressure on you from the media to say what happened or to defend your people, you say, we'll find out, you know, we're going to investigate, we'll find out and then we'll share Whatever happened, you just, you know, share the truth. And that the friendly fire, you know, the, the one I wrote a book about was was just a tragic case of organizational failure, large complex organizations. You know, but you can't keep a secret. So the first is you can't keep a secret. Um, you know, people believe in conspiracy theories. It always amazed me. You know, I've been in an organization for years where, you know, you try to have people keep secrets with laws and you know, classified things, and you just can't. So, exactly. You know, no, having, no one in you know, all of NASA would have, would have come out and, and said, hey, it was all fake when we landed on the moon. Exactly. Like, you know, or, or the 9-11. I mean, people believe that you can't get three people to keep a secret, um, you know, about an, a, an affair or something, you know, in their, in their marriage. You try to get, you know, 15 or 20 or 100 people who were on the ground that day listening to the, listening to the firefight. So, so in the aftermath is be humble and say, we don't know. You know, and we don't know. And then we're, we're going to find out and try to do the best thing we can. And every time there's a potential civilian casualty, you know, we do our best to limit. You know, all you can do is say we do our best. Once you start to erode that, where you, you know, someone says something before they should have or that's inaccurate and that seemed like they were trying to cover something up, it's just really hard to get back. Trust. I talk about this a lot. Trust. Right? It's so hard to build because it, it takes a long time and yet you can lose it. You know, like that, right? It takes years to build brand, um, and you can lose it overnight. Sometimes there's also opportunities in failure. Let's let's learn from this, right? And and you can flip that, you know, completely. So every time you have a, a bad product that goes out, it's an opportunity to lock in a customer for life. How do you handle that customer who got, you know, a defective product? You take care of them more than they ever expected they would. So similar, you know, with service or products, right? It's every and you're gonna fail every time you fail. Um, you, you can either try to do what seems expedient in the short run, cover it up, blame someone else, or you can, um, immediately say, you know, own up to it, um, apologize, and then try to turn it into an opportunity, right. Um, to double down your values, say this is inconsistent with our values and, um, we're going to do better. Yeah. In Silicon Valley, it's almost a badge of honor to have failed, failed fast, as they like to say, and, and recovered. No, fail early, fast and often, right? Fail early, exactly. Fast and yeah. Often. Early, fast and often. That's the mantra, right? Yeah. You said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet how many employees, how many leaders are going to go to work tomorrow or today and said, Hey, look, I walked in the office. I failed early. I did it fast. I'm going to do it all day long. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, uh, we talk about this. It's I a good line. Of it, but yeah. 
There is value in being willing to fail, though. I, I remember in one of your presentations, you used that wonderful video of the basketball coach, Mo Cheeks, jumping in yeah. to help the, the young girl who forgets the words to the national anthem. And it's a great leadership moment, not least of which because God bless him, but the man really can't sing. <laughs> no, I mean, one of the great takeaways from that is you don't have to be perfect to be incredible, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, our, this deep felt need we feel to convince the world that our stuff don't stink, um, you know, actually pushes people away from us. You know, people don't line up to help us um, fulfill that ridiculous uh, image we have of ourselves. And yet, if you share your vulnerability, you know, you say, hey, I don't know, but I'll, I don't know the answer to that. Let me find out. Or, you know, I really did screw that up yesterday. You know, I apologize. Or, you know what, can you help me with this? I'm, I really suck at this. You know, things are the last thing you want to do as a leader. Um, you actually, that's how you actually um, build engagement and generate trust and, um, and loyalty in organizations. Teams are more important than ever before. And, and decision-making is more collaborative than ever before. And the real strength of a good team, I think, is its diversity. If people have different specialties, different talents, different opinions, you can come to a much better decision. But how do you, how do you ensure that you're really hearing the voices of, of all those people and you're creating a dynamic where there is that open feedback. In the scenario you raised, yeah, decision-making, complex decision-making, if that's what the team's task is. I, my mentor is a guy named Richard Hackman, who I believe knows more about teams than anybody ever did. I lost him a couple of years ago, but um, he said, first of all, look at the task. So yeah, if the task, as it is in many um, you know, teams in, in information technology, you know, in high fast paced organizations, it's about making the right, you know, creative decisions, then diversity and the right kind of diversity, you know, people with different experiences, different takes on, you know, whether it's from the customer or from the product or R and D or technology, you know, you know, having the right people and diverse along the correct lines, you're more likely to get a higher quality decision. If you can hear from everybody. Now let me just flip it a second, because I we, we never think about this. We do in the military. Once you get into execution mode, actually diversity around, you know, well, you know what? I think we should go this way, that way. You know, that that's when actually it becomes a challenge for leaders, right? Um, if if you want everybody kind of moving in the same direction, um, people who think alike and who are all in the same sheet of music, um, if, if success is based 90% on execution and not on coming up with a novel or the latest idea, diverse, too many diverse people... Um, gets in the way. It, it takes longer to make decisions. Um, when you're in the execution mode and not in the sort of problem solving mode, diversity, too much, you know, um, uh, conflict, creative conflict can actually hinder team performance. It is a balance for a leader. You can make a better decision with more information. You, you, to these days, you get more data from, from the machines right. and you can right. get diverse opinions from your people. But if you're the leader, if it's in the military or a business or, or, or what have you, public sector, it's still on your shoulders to, to make that decision. You still kind of need to maintain that balance between giving people a voice and being in charge. So it's, it's, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? It's an art. It is on the front end. And then once you're in the execution mode, right? So, which, you know, 
I, I tell, you know, again, I'm just a dumb grunt, but success is a function, a multiplicative function, only two things, right? Direction and, and execution. And that's it, right? You can, you can get the vision strategy, the direction right, right, a hundred, a hundred percent right. And, and be horrible at executing it. And, you know, if that at zero percent and nothing happens, right. Or you can get, you know, the direction or the, the vision or the strategy or whatever, you know, 80% right, execute 150%. Um, and you do really well. I always caution people. Um, it's a two edged sword, right? It's, and it takes longer speed. If, and if quality decision doesn't matter as much as speed, you know, you don't want diversity. If execution matters more than the actual answer, which a lot of times in the military does, it's like right or wrong, Lieutenant, do something. You just move, develop the situation. Um, as opposed to trying to wait for, you know, to get enough data to make a decision at the 98%. Most of the time you gotta, you gotta make a call at 60% now, or maybe 40% and develop the situation and learn from it. You need to distinguish between those situations where you need that super fast execution that you're talking about. Cause we, as we keep mm-hmm. saying, things are moving so much faster and there might be another situation where you want to mull it and get all those different opinions. So it's, it's, it's yet another decision for the leader to make. Yeah. And then you're right. You have to create psychological space where a uh, safety where, you know, you, you're going to hear from everybody. And that's, that is a challenge. That's my challenge in the classroom, uh, leading case discussions, you know, does everybody feel um, empowered and, and safe enough to actually share what they're thinking? And well, I've got an incredibly diverse group. Sometimes the introverts have good ideas and the extroverts Mm -hmm. might, I know there's been studies on this. The introvert, the extroverts can sometimes dominate a decision-making process. We're in this highly, highly technological, digitally empowered age. And yet so much of what we're talking about comes down to soft, so-called soft skills like collaboration and communication and empathy and emotional intelligence. That's what I teach. That's the course I teach. That's authentic leader development. It's really a course in EQ. It's about self-awareness, self-regulation, about empathy, about social skills, and about motivation. And look, knowledge is perishable. What, what, everything I, I tell my Harvard MBA students, you know, what you're learning today, I mean, yeah, discounted cash flow. Some things aren't going to change. How different ways to value a company. Some things aren't going to change. But whatever you're learning in school these two years, if you only use it the first year you're out of here, or what you learn in finance that second year, if you don't use it like in a couple of weeks, it's gone. And what you learn, you know, may no longer be relevant. Right. I mean, I can give me somebody who's got that other stuff, the character part, which would be the soft skills. Um, and I can teach them anything <laughs> and you, you know, and, and if the soft skills are constantly learning and being resilient and um, learning from mistakes, those, those are the gifts that keep on giving as opposed to someone who, you know, might be incredibly narrowly and technically confident in one particular skill. So that's the future. Those students of yours, they will be dealing with team dynamics. They may be managing a team or they may be managing multiple teams and they're going to need to be bringing all those people together with that shared vision and, and hopefully executing on those, those bigger goals as a collective. It's a big challenge, isn't it? What's that? I was a nuclear engineer by training and gave it up and because I find people and organizations endlessly fascinating. There's, there's always going to be a growth market. We can always do better. Um, gosh, you don't have to look very far, whether it's in politics or religion or academics and, or, or business that we can, how can we not do better at leading <laughs> so much yeah. wasted human talent out there every day. So, 
a lot of what Shakespeare wrote about leaders is very much still true. I'm sure I'm sure it'll still be true in the future, no matter how digitized we get. No, I, I, I start most of my time, my lectures and say, look, the fundamentals of leading haven't changed since time immemorial. Right? I mean, you know, what, what causes you to trust someone? What causes you, some, you to align yourself behind someone? I don't think those fundamentals have, you know, it's, it's human nature, right? It, it's basically what you're dealing with. And those fundamentals really haven't changed much. And of course, you got to apply them in different settings and different cultural sensitivities. But in the end, to get someone, you know, on board and mobilized and um, unleash their talent and their energy, the fundamentals haven't changed. Someone has to believe in what you're doing and um, be able to do it, be competent and able to do it. And that's kind of it. <laughs> it's pretty much competence and character, right? No one's going to follow you for long. You're not pretty damn good at what you do. And then if you want to lead instead of just write code or, or trade stocks or whatever it is, there's got to be something, what you're calling the soft skills. There's got to be something else there. That's harder. To, that's harder to shape. There's so much talk about the future of work, and it is changing. Artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, technologies, robots, everything is, is coming in to the workplace in all different ways. And there's a lot of talk about leaders being more nimble and adaptable. And some things will change, but as you say, some things won't. <laughs> because there are people in the loop, right? So. Yeah, that's the piece that's always, you know, and I'm all the time we fire everything. I look at it, organizational failures. I say in the in the case study, the friendly fire incident, I was like, they say, well, the IFS system, the identify friend or foe system failed. And everybody thinks, you know, what broke? Well, nothing broke. There was people in the system. There's always people in the loop and we're human. And um, that will always be the, that will always be the art. There's always going to be the science. There's, you know, we say there's an art and science to the military. There's an art and science to deleting you know i can teach you some things and there's some some right and wrong things but there's always an art to it because there's always a person and that's what keeps me going every day my special thanks to colonel scott snook from harvard business school this is kevin delaney for connected futures thank you for listening to the podcast insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfuturesmag.com.